a week from Friday, there's the teen Christmas party here at the church. That would be the 16th. And the 17th is the ladies' uh, prayer breakfast that morning. Is there anything else? Anything else? There's church Sunday morning. And there will be church Christmas morning. I can't believe how many people asked if we were going to have church on Christmas morning on Sunday. That that just like that goes without saying. Of course we'd have church on Christmas morning. New Year's we'll have we'll have church and we're gonna wonder how many people are actually here and can focus, but that's another story. Well, um we had a good conference. I'll talk about that in a minute. The pre-trib conference went very well. And uh, I wish some of y'all would come, and I'm going to encourage you a little bit more next year. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and that we're ready to study the word when we are walking by the Spirit. Then that which we do in terms of obedience to God has eternal value because it is produced by the Holy Spirit. But when we walk by the flesh, no matter what we do, It's a product of the sin nature and has no eternal value. So it is important that we make sure that we're in fellowship and that uh, we're rightly related to God uh, in terms of fellowship so that we can uh, be prepared spiritually to study the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful that we live at a time and in a nation where we have the freedom to study your word and we have access to so much sound biblical teaching. And, Father, with the technology that we have today, there is no reason for a person not to uh, grow spiritually and not to learn Scripture in depth because there is so much, so much that is made available to us, not only from those in our own generation but from the generations preceding us there's so much available so much in print so much now on the internet and father there's just no excuse for not being uh, well trained in the scriptures and knowledgeable about the scriptures father we pray that as we study this evening that we might come to a uh, more complete full understanding of the topic that we've been studying in these initial chapters of romans about how to be righteous before you, how we may be declared justified in your presence. And we pray that as we study this, that our our focus will be sharpened and that the eyes of our soul would be enlightened by the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to do three things in a time that we have. First of all, I want to give you a brief report on the pre-trib rapture study group meeting, just what we did, what we covered, what it was like. And we're going to have to make this a team presentation because, unfortunately, I had to miss a few events. And uh, Pastor Dan Ingram from the the National Capital Bible Church is here. And uh, Dan's going to report on the parts that I did not attend. And then... um, Second thing we're going to do is review and uh, and summarize what we've covered in Romans 1 through 4, and then I'm going to go into some additional uh, comments and exegesis on the last uh, three or four verses in Romans chapter 4. I kind of popped over the high points last time. There's some more things I want to I want to get to today that are very important, and then we will uh, that will bring us to a conclusion of chapter of chapter 4. For those of you who don't know anything about the pre-trib rapture study group, this this started uh, 20 years ago. This was the 20th annual pre-trib rapture 
study group. It was started uh, in, de- in uh, December 1991 as a result of the uh, combined forces of Dr. Uh, Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice. Tommy and I had, and Charlie had actually talked a lot about and dreamed a lot about having a dispensational think tank back in the late 80s as more and more uh, uh, seminaries and theologians and other groups uh, came up uh, attacking dispensationalism. It, there, there needed to be some sort of academically oriented organization that would work specifically on uh, defending the, the pre-trib dispensational uh, rapture doctrine and our view of prophecy. And one of the reasons for that, sadly, was because the seminaries that had historically stood for dispensationalism were beginning to drift off course. Dallas was beginning to shift into progressive dispensationalism in their uh, theology department. Uh, Talbot was. Other schools were spending a lot more time talking about uh, psychology and counseling and uh, other types of, uh, of new techniques to somehow stimulate people spiritually, all, in my opinion, works of the flesh, and leaving out theology, especially uh, dis- premillennial, pre-tribulational dispensationalism. And so uh, there were a lot of attacks, and it just has increased over the years. People you never would have thought would depart from dispensationalism, have departed and become covenant theologians, or they've shifted from amillennialism to postmillennialism. Somebody here, oh, Judy, I went to visit Judy uh, in the hospital the other day, and she was reading an old classic by Charles Feinberg, who was a Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary back in the uh, late 40s and early 50s. He had been trained uh, he was brought up in an Orthodox Jewish home, trained from a young age to be a rabbi, uh, discovered uh, Yeshua as his Messiah in his late teens and uh, went to Dallas uh, Seminary and was, was just un- unbelievably uh, uh, brilliant in the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew. Uh, and he wrote a book on millennial, just called Millennialism. And it just and this came out in the late forties. It just dealt with amillennialism and premillennialism because, as he said in his foreword, postmillennialism was dead. Well, postmillennialism resurrected itself in the seventies, and uh, there you know a lot of publications, a lot of things that have come out attacking dispensationalists and pre, the pre-trib rapture, making all sorts of fraudulent claims that have been demonstrated to be false, but they still misrepresent Even a scholar uh, with the reputation of John Gerstner, who you may not know, but he was a, a well-known uh, scholar. I think he's with the Lord now. Wrote a book on, on dispensationalism in the early 90s, and, and well over 50% of the things that he said dispensationalists taught and believed were not true. And so there needed to be an answer. And so the pre-trib rapture study group met. Initially, it was uh, just pa- uh, pastors, academics, uh, seminary professors, and some popularizers. Hal Lindsey was at the first few others. The idea was to bring the scholars and the popularizers together so that hopefully the popularizers would get straightened out by the scholarship of the others. And maybe the scholarly ones would learn how to communicate a little more at the popular level by listening to the other guys. And by the late 90s, it, um, Tim LaHaye decided it might be a good idea to invite non-professional non-professional Christian workers to come to sit as observers so that we could get the word out and have an impact at a broader level. And uh, so now, rather than just having uh, that small group of about 40 to 60 academics there, uh, there's been as many as 500. Uh, Two or three years ago, they hit that high point of about 500. With the recession, there are uh, most conferences of this nature have shrunk about 20, 25% the attendance. So there were over 300 in attendance uh, this year. And it was a, uh, a conference where everything related 
to the rapture itself, all the papers, not just to uh, other uh, issues related to dispensationalism or prophecy, but everything this year in honor of the 20th anniversary was related specifically to understanding uh, the pre-trib, pre-trib rapture. So I put up on the board here, up on the screen, maybe, maybe not. There, there we go. A, uh, this is the list, if you can read it, of the... Uh, I don't know how to enlarge that. I'm sure there's a way I can... No, oh, maybe if I go over here, I can do that. View it... Uh, Zoom in. Yeah, that might help a little bit. Let's do that again. View, zoom in. Okay. So this, it opened, uh, Dr. LaHaye could not be there this year because his wife had had surgery on her hip. She'd had a rep- hip replacement several years ago, and it had gone bad. Uh, they had gone in and replaced it, and there were some complications, and so she can't walk on it or do anything for a while. Uh, and if she does, then they can't, operate anymore if anything goes wrong. So he stayed home with his wife, as he should have, to uh, take care of her. Uh, Tommy opened things up, and then he gave the first paper, which was on um, an overview. I'm supposed to be able to close that somehow. Tools. uh, What do I do? Uh, Sidebar, turn that off. Close it, hide it. Okay, on um, an overview of the rapture in church history. And this is really important because over the course of, of the last 100, almost 200 years since John Nelson Darby, who was the first to articulate a systematic view of dispensationalism and for many years been considered the originator of the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture uh, due to, as a result of the encouragement scholarship background of this particular group, uh, there have been a number of, of, um, uh, of, of um, discoveries in the last 20 years due to the pre-trib rapture study group of earlier pastors, theologians, and writers who have obviously held to a pre-trib rapture position. And though we have always believed that this was true, you have to have documentary evidence that it is true. And so there have been a number of discoveries made going back into the early church, the earliest of which was a writing by a man who uh, called himself Ephraim the Syrian, but he wasn't. He was just using that as a pseudonym, so he's called uh, you know the um, pseudo Saint e- pseudo Ephraim, and it was clear that he believed that the rapture preceded the tribulation. Now some people had the tribulation as only three and a half years; they weren't making a mid-trib position. They just had only a three and a half year tribulation. Darby, according to what Tommy's discovered, is Darby held to only a three and a half year tribulation for. Uh, just his, during his initial studies for maybe six months or so before he realized it covered the entire, uh, that, that Daniel's 70th week identified it as a seven year, uh, seven year period. So in that presentation, Tommy identified a number of different, uh, people and individuals, uh, Edward Morgan, Morgan Edwards rather, who was a Baptist and the, and the founder and first president of, of, um, Brown University. Of course, they don't have anything in the... Brown University, by the way, is in Providence, Rhode Island. It's, it is arguably the most liberal university in the country. I read a study when I was in Connecticut that there were probably fewer than... There were no conservatives or Republicans on the faculty, and there were probably fewer than a handful in the student body. And when Tommy went there one time looking to find writings by... Um, uh, Morgan Edwards, they didn't have anything he had written, and they didn't care. So like many of those uh, schools founded in the East originally to train pastors, they're so liberal now they really are embarrassed by their heritage. So he covered that. Then Then we had a break, and then John Hart spoke. John is a professor in Moody Bible Institute. I've read uh, several things by him that have been quite excellent, 
and he wrote a paper defending the view that uh, in Matthew 24, starting in verse 36 and on, that that is that view is, that shifts back to talking about the rapture as a signless event. Most, but not all, there's a lot of disagreement over this among pre-trib dispensationalists. Uh, believe uh, m- many believe the majority view is probably that it's all about the second coming, but there are a number like uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, Hal Lindsey, uh, a number of others who think that in verse 36 there's a shift that occurs back, going back to, um, and, and, and it's once again talking about a signless event. And, and John did an excellent job presenting his view. And uh, I've read through his whole paper, and I need to go back and really study some of his arguments. I spent about two hours on the phone today with uh, uh, Dr. Michael Radelnik, who's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute, graduated from uh, Dallas in 83, and has written a number of just fabulous uh, works on related to the the Old Testament. And he said that he he takes the same view that Hart does and that they got a lot of their argument from uh, Craig Glickman, who was a prophet Dallas when I was a student there as well. Uh, So that was a a, a very uh, thought-provoking paper. Then in the afternoon, I had two speakers. Dan's going to come up and talk about them. uh, Dr. Uh, uh, David Hawking had had an injury to his elbow in in a traffic accident and had forgotten his antibiotics. My back was out, and I'd forgotten to take my Valium with me, so uh, I, I literally spent the next six hours just trying to get to the right pharmacy. I was standing by Bruce when he called what was supposed to be the nearest pharmacy. I went to the nearest pharmacy. They had never, nearest Walgreens. They had never heard the call, but they said, ah, but we can call them and transfer it. The people at the other Walgreens, after two hours, still hadn't been able to retrieve it. And so I uh, was confirmed in my opinion that that's not a good pharmacy and um, I had to go back to the hotel. By now, they're in the middle of the last session. Pull Bruce out. Bruce called him again. I could barely walk at that time, so I went upstairs and laid down for a couple of hours. Then when they filled it, I went to get it. It wasn't a near pharmacy. It was 10 miles away. So by the time I got back, they were already into the banquet. I just went upstairs and worked on my PowerPoint presentation for my presentation the next day. So Dan's going to give us a brief uh, overview of that afternoon and banquet. All right, am I, uh, no. no. I don't think, all right, thank you very much. Um, so this will be actually the first time that Robbie's heard this uh, as well. If you get over here, you'll be on camera. <laughs> Maybe I better stay over here. Uh, it, it was it was really a joy to be there at the uh, uh, the 20th annual pre-trib conference, and I, really I've only attended maybe the last two or three because when they started that was 20 years ago my parents wouldn't have allowed me to go I was still in grade school. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> the. The third presentation was Dr. Paul Wilkinson, and Robbie can probably tell you a little bit more about the relationship between Paul and Tommy Ice, but I think they met in England, and he has come to the last three uh, pre-trib conferences, and each time his presentation has been exceptional. This time he talked about the rapture and evangelism, uh, talking about the various ministers and how their focus and emphasis on the rapture has had an impact on their ministries uh, and it's caused them to be motivated to evangelism. Uh, he said that the pre-trib, their pre-trib belief gave them an urgency for witnessing to their friends and their acquaintances. And he spoke of quite a few different uh, pastors, uh, ministers, evangelists, and how that had an impact on their lives. As a matter of fact, one of the, I would really encourage you to listen to that because he he gave an interesting story about uh, Ribbentrop and how he came to know the Lord during the trials at Nuremberg. And I don't want to uh, take uh, a lot of time here, but he said that 
there was a chaplain, an army chaplain that was assigned to uh, the Nuremberg trials. And I think he made the comment that every day the uh, all the prisoners had to attend, right, had to attend a, um, a ceremony, a chat or a, um, a, um, a chaplain service, service. So, uh, and at first, when he met Ribbentrop, he was, he was a German officer, well, yeah, high German ranking officer who was, who was, uh, really one of the strongest advocates of the Holocaust and the extermination of the Jews, helping to set up the, um, the concentration camps. So he was really rather standoffish and um, at first, but as they went through the trials, he became more and more approachable. Well, he was one of the three that was sentenced to death by hanging. And when he, uh, he accepted Christ as his Savior prior to his execution, and as he stepped up to the hangman's noose, and it was the noose was being uh, prepared to be put around his head, the chaplain was standing beside him, and he turned to the chaplain and he said, I'll see you again. And so that's he was a believer as he went to his death. Um, that was a very interesting story, and, and that's a very abbreviated um, uh, rendition of it. Uh, he also, the, the next one, the fourth one that we had was Dr. Tim Demme, The History of American pre, uh, Pre-Tribulationalism. And he talked about, first of all, dispensationalism coming to America really by way of his comment was John Nelson Darby. He talked about Dwight L. Moody, uh, how he became a very strong uh, predispensationalist. As a matter of fact, uh, it was Dwight L. Moody, he said, that made the comment, there's nothing between me and the rapture. He also spoke about James Hall Brooks, uh, William E. Blackstone, C.I. Schofield, Arnold C. Gabeline, and uh, Charles Ryrie. He had others, but those are the names that I, I wrote down as he went through them. Uh, the next, the next presentation uh, on the, the was our which was our fifth presentation. Okay, the banquet. Uh, yes, we had the banquet that evening, and um, uh, Dr. Heinsen, Ed Heinsen, spoke to us, and he spoke a, a, briefly about the. Um, uh, the pre-trib conference and how it got started. And then he gave really a very um, uh, interesting presentation uh, about um, being a pre-tribulationalist and, and, and dispensationalism. So um, that was a, a very excellent uh, a presentation on his part. I know one of the things that he emphasized was that he teaches revelation uh, at uh, Liberty University, and so he had uh, some of the background from uh, Revelation there as well. The fifth presentation the next day, beginning the next day, was the rapture in the book of Revelation, and David, Dr. David Hawking gave that presentation, and uh, a lot of his focus was on Revelation 4 and 5, the rapture, again, in the book of Revelation, and he spoke about the uh, 24 elders. Uh, we're, we know that in the first three chapters, the church, there's, a, there's an emphasis on the church. And I think the word ecclesia is mentioned something like 16 times. And then it's not mentioned at all in chapters 4 through 19. And then it's mentioned again when we get to chapter 22. But uh, Dr. Hawking spoke about the 24 elders, and one of the comments that he made was that we normally, when we talk about elders, we normally think of that word being applied to the church. And so it was his position that the 24 elders uh, are a representation of the church. And then he went to uh, he went over to chapter five, uh, verse nine, and he gave a 
presentation on the verse, verse 9 that says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, for you were slain and have redeemed us. And who is this us sing, uh, that, that is singing here or speaking? And he believes that that is uh, part of the 24 elders. And so this was the, the representation of the church in heaven at that time, singing this to, uh, to the Lord. And then he went on, uh, the rest of the verse is, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, uh, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And if you're following along in your translation, there are a lot of um, challenges, I guess I should say. There are manuscript, different manuscripts that apply to those verses. And so he spoke about that just briefly, about how those uh, the different manuscripts might apply to that, because not every translation has us and we in those those verses. Uh, the next presentation, Jesus and the Rapture, by Dr. Andy Wood, and he spoke about John 14, 1 through 4. He did it in three parts. He talked about some preliminary observations, uh, the reason for the rapture being found in John 14. And then he gave an excellent exegesis of those verses. And then finally talked about answering the non-rapture arguments for that passage. I thought he did a, a defined job. Immediately after that, uh, the presentation was on the three major rapture passages by a gentleman that uh, I think we under we all know here, uh, Dr. Robert Dean. And, of course, we had just had a presentation on John uh, 14. And so he immediately amended that to the two uh, rapture passages for his presentation. And it was an excellent presentation. I think, as he would say, it was not necessarily all hat and no cattle. So it was a, an excellent. I think my mother would say he was speaking through his hat, but uh, I think you'll, you'll. Uh, he spoke of, again, First uh, Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, and also First Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. Uh, the next presentation was Dr. Wayne House on. Uh, and the topic was, is the rapture found in Second Thessalonians 2.3? And the emphasis, the crux of his presentation was whether in Second Thessalonians 2.3 we have the word apostasy from apostasia, or do we have a, which is, of course, a transliteration, and then a uh, definition of a transliteration, or do we have a translation? Should we have a translation there with the word being departure so that the departure in that word, in that verse, would then be the church being raptured instead of an apostasy occurring in the world at that time? And his position, of course, is going to be departure so that it, the rapture is in that verse. Then uh, Dr. Mark, Mark Hitchcock gave a, an overview of the pre-tribulational argument. And the, what he essentially did was uh, took an acronym pre-trib and talked about um, the arguments and positions that we have for pre-tribulationalism. And then the final presentation came from uh, Dr. Ice again. He talked about... Um, John Nelson Darby and the rapture. And he, he said that um, John Nelson Darby is considered to be the individual that has had the most impact, probably the most influential person that um, at least uh, in the last 300 years as far as dispensationalism is concerned and pre-tribulationalism. Uh, uh, one of the comments he made was that John Nelson Darby came to the United States uh, many times, but in his travels, he didn't, he, he didn't simply speak and talk about dispensationalism and pre-dispensationalism, uh, pre but, pre but he actually established quite a few churches. As a matter of fact, 
Tommy said that somewhere in the vicinity of 1,500 churches might be able to be accredited to him as far as those church plants were concerned. So he talked, uh, he finished his talk. He really didn't get very far in his paper. I think he only got to about page seven. But he talked about the fact that uh, John Nelson Darby was not influenced by the Irvinites and he was not, uh, he also was not influenced by Margaret McDonald. Yeah, I forgot her last name, Margaret McDonald. And he's accused of that all the time. His detractors like to say that John Nelson Darby um, got his ideas, received his ideas from uh, the Irvinites and also Margaret McDonald. And that's absolutely not true. So, Robert, thank you. Good. Give another pastor a microphone. Ask him to cover three sessions. He covered the rest of them, but he did a good job. There for the rest of them. That's right. You were asleep, but you did a good job. So why should I interrupt you? Thanks a lot, Dan. Uh, yeah, uh, that's really important to understand that Darby got the rapture from studying the Bible. He was injured in, a, in an accident with a horse that pushed him up against a fence post and broke his knee, and he had to uh, convalesce for several months, and he was a little depressed, and the only thing he could do was read his Bible. Next time you're sick, remember that. Just sit there and read your Bible. And he, he had been post-millennial, and as he read through his Bible again and again and again, he not only became pre-millennial, but he came to understand the rapture just from reading his Bible. Now, Dan had mentioned Margaret MacDonald and... Uh, and the Irvingites, the Irvingites are sort of a proto-charismatic type of group that's not looked upon with much favor. So that's a real, that's a real insult to say Darby got it from the Irvingites or from this prophetic utterance that uh, uh, Margaret MacDonald actually gave. And if you read the account of that utterance, it's actually post-tribulational. So a lot of these criticisms that people float out there uh, for the pre-trib rapture. Uh, have been debunked historically, exegetically, and and uh, biblically. So it was a it was a good conference. It was uh, well attended, and it's good to see a lot of people that were there. Dick and Betty were back there, and of course Bruce uh, Bruce Cooper uh, handled the um, video and everything. Okay, let's look at Romans. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter one. Because I said I wanted to do three, th- uh, two things basically. One was the report on the rapture. We went a little longer than I thought, but that was good. Now I want to review Romans one through four, and then we'll, I want to clear up some things at the end of Romans chapter one. I think at the end of Romans four, I think it's important to contextualize what is being said here. Context is everything. Remember, you take the text out of the context and you're left with a con job. Don't ever just look at verses in isolation. Now, what, uh, if you look up on the screen, I've got the, uh, a rough outline of what we've looked at in Romans 1 through 4 so far. The introduction goes down through verse 17, the key verses being verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God. It's not up to us. It's not up to our uh, abilities to persuade, to convince, to argue, but it is to clearly explain the power, the, the gospel, and God the Holy Spirit then uh, uses that. Uh, it, it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And uh, I don't think I covered this when I covered that verse, but that the first and then here isn't chronological. It has to do with 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 priority. Uh, it has to, and not chronology. It's not like all some people. I just learned this. There are some people who think that this means you ought to go when you start witnessing. Always go to Jews first and then go to Gentiles. It's not saying that Jews have the priority because they're the ones to whom God revealed himself and who have uh, the promises and the covenant so they have they have the priority in terms of their position within history not priority in terms of chronology or order 
And that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, meaning phase one, faith, when we're justified, to faith, phase two, when we are growing and progressing. So notice how righteousness from God, of God is revealed at the phase one, when we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and also in phase two, spiritual life as we grow. Now that's important for what I'm going to say about some verses at the end of chapter 4. And then we get to the, that next section in uh, 118. Actually, the section goes from 118 to 320, establishes the need for justification. And the need for justification is basically because, as Paul summarizes it in 323, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you have the uh, explanation of the immoral one who rejects the revelation of God in creation, and then you have the person who thinks they can become righteous through their own morality in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and then in chapters, actually 1 through 4, uh, then in from uh, 2, 1 through 4, excuse me, then in 2, 5 and following, there's a clear break there in the grammar, 2, 5 to 3, 8, you have the Jew. Now, the emphasis there is on, on the Jewish claim, and this was, this was, this was uh, distinct to this period of Judaism, the claim that, that the men had to be circumcised to enter. That's the entry point into the covenant, the blessings of God, and salvation. Now, we've covered this some in Colossians, and we've covered the circumcision issue a lot. And one question always kind of nagged me at the back of my mind, and I didn't quite know who to ask. I was going to email uh, Arnold the question, but Arnold has a tendency to not answer your email for six months, and I just figured by then we, it would all be, I mean, we would either be raptured or we would be in the next book. So I never emailed him, but I... I saw him this week, so I asked him, I said, why is it that, or how was it that in this circumstance where you have these uh, Judaizers coming in, some of whom may have been Christians, and but they wanted, they were emphasizing the law that if it's great to trust in Christ, but that you don't get it all. Uh, they were sort of early charismatics. You know, charismatics say you don't get it all when you trust in Jesus. You have to have a second step. Well, they were kind of two-steppers like that. Uh, you get something with Jesus, but to get it all, you've got to have be circumcised. I said, how did the women hear that? I mean, how does that relate to to a, a to, to women? What did what was the the issue there? And he gave me his answer, and I wasn't quite satisfied with his answer. Not that it's much different from the answer I'm going to give you, but that was one reason I called uh, Doctor. Uh, Rydelnik today, and I talked to him. I asked him the question, and he had, does a better. I think he does a better job of explaining some of the some of Arnold's answers than Arnold does. And he had the, basically the same answer. He said, "Number one," and Arnold hadn't pointed this out. Number one, in in the synagogue at that time, there's a distinction. You know, the men are on one side, women are on the other side, and the men are first class citizens and the women are like third-class citizens. And so they weren't concerned about the women. They're concerned about the men. But there were two ways that you got into Judaism, that you became a convert to Judaism or you entered into, uh, you became a proselyte. One was the males had to be circumcised. Didn't matter what else they did, that males had to be circumcised. And the women, and then both men and women had to, uh, be ritually immersed in the, in the mikveh, uh, which was the, like the, we've seen pictures of those outside the, the, the temple, uh, or, or the southern gates of, of the temple. And so that was how they entered into the covenant. So women would, would the counterpart would, the women would have to be, um, ritually immersed. That's sort of the predecessor for believers, uh, believers' baptism in a, in, in a cultural sense. Now, now Arnold's first answer was that, that he said, well, Rob, you have to understand the difference between a rabbi and a moil. You know, a moil was, is the, uh, is the, usually, often a rabbi, but the moil is the one who performs the act of circumcision. And he said, Rob, you, Rob, you've got to understand the difference between a rabbi and a moil. 
a rabbi, I said, well, what's the difference? He said, a rabbi gets, pay, gets paid a salary and the moil gets the tips. Just see if y'all are still awake and following along today. So that's, uh, I get to blame that on Arnold. He's bad. So that, that is, was the issue in circumcision and in first century Judaism as opposed to later Ju- development of Judaism, the emphasis was really all on circumcision. And, uh, that wasn't true two or three hundred years later, but it was at the time of Christ. And so uh, when Paul is speaking of circumcision, he's not just speaking specifically of that, but it really stood for the whole works righteousness system that was uh, that was there uh, in Judaism. So uh, in, in that section, he deals with the fact that, that Jews had great privileges because God gave them the covenants and the promises, but that didn't get them righteousness. Righteousness for the Jew, righteousness for the moral person, righteousness for the immoral person only comes by uh, faith alone in, in Christ as a gift from God. He begins to explain that, the, what justification is, in verses 21 to 31 of chapter, uh, of chapter 3, that uh, there's no boasting, there's no works, there's no law except the law of faith, verse 27, and that he concludes, verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Any legal obedience is is irrelevant. And then Paul expands that, that this applies not just to Jews because God is not the God of Jews only, but he is also the God of the Gentiles. That's verse 29. And he is the God who will uh, justify the... And here he says, notice verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that it, the, he's using the term the circumcised to refer to the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, that would be the Gentiles, uh, then it is through the law of faith, not works, that we are justified. Then chapter 4 gives two illustrations, one from Abraham, one from David. Now, follow me here. I haven't emphasized this before, but to understand what's happening at the end of 4, you have to understand this. Two phases of salvation. Phase 1 is justification. It happens in an instant, a moment in time, when a person believes in Jesus as their Savior. God imputes to them righteousness, and the Supreme Court of Heaven declares them righteous, not because of anything in their Life, not because of any transformation, but because they are, uh, they, they have received the imputation, the credit, they've been credited with Christ's righteousness. But that's not the only type of justification there is in the Bible. There is a justification related to phase two, ongoing, progressive, in terms of obedience that brings about an experiential righteousness, which is where we go at the end of the chapter. So at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is talking about phase 1 justification, but by the time we get to verse 16, 17 and following, he's shifting to phase 2. So let me give you, in the next 11 minutes, 12 points of summary on verses 14 14 through 25. Some of this is well clear. First point he's making in verses 14 and 15 is that the Mosaic law brings divine discipline. He states it in 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, uh, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. It's either the law or it's faith in the promise. And then in 15 he says, because the law brings about wrath. What he means is that the law brings divine discipline because no one can obey the law perfectly. Disobedience brings discipline or judgment from God. Second thing that we covered was that where there is no written law, there's no transgression of a written law. And you remember I pointed out that when we read that verse at the end of verse 15 that where there's no law, there's no transgression. What you're hearing is that where there's no law, there's no sin. But that's not what it's saying. The word transgression is that word parabasis, which means 
a, a violation of a written precept. So he's being very clear where there's no written law, there, you, you, where there's no written law, you can't violate the written law. There's no transgression. But remember back in Romans 2, Paul made it very clear that even the Gentiles who don't have the law still violate the law in their conscience and are under condemnation. So he's not saying where there's no law, there's no sin. He's saying, he's talking about Abraham now. Abraham lives 430 years before the law. So he's saying Abraham needs to be justified even though he never violated, he never transgressed the Mosaic law. I pointed out that um, what he's saying here is the law cannot be obeyed. The result, therefore, is wrath. If there's no law, written law, there's no violation of the law. And so his point here is that the promise is for those who obtain it by faith alone. God makes a promise, and the faith is directed not just to the promise, but to the one who makes the promise as the one who is able to perform it. So the conclusion then from those two points is that if obedience to the written law cannot lead to life, then life must be based on grace rather than law. It's either one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. Romans 4.16, Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, that is the Jews, earlier he called them the circumcision, now he refers to the Jews in this phrase of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So what do the two justified groups have in common? Faith. And then he says of Abraham, he, who's described as the father of us all, those who have faith. So there's the contrast. It's either faith, by grace through faith, or it's by works through law. Those are the two. It's law, grace, I mean law, works, faith, grace, one or the other. Now notice in this verse it says it's a faith that it might be according to grace so, so that our, so with, for the purpose that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Now who are all the seed? Fourth point, all the seed includes all those who follow Abraham's example of faith in God. Abraham's righteousness was not based on obedience to the law, which was 430 years after Abraham. 430 years ago, the North American continent of the Western Hemisphere was still barely known to the Europeans. So 430 years is a long time. Also, he wasn't, he wasn't circumcised till many years after he was, he, was, he was saved. Now, in 4.16 we read, Therefore is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, that is the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, that is the Gentiles who have trusted in Abraham, the father of us all. Now, he then explains that in verse 17. So the fifth point that we covered was that Abraham is both the physical father of many nations through his son Ishmael as well as his grandson Esau and others that he had, the Midianites. Uh, after he married Keturah, he had other sons. But he's the father of all believers, Jew or Gentile. Romans 4.17 states, as it is written, this is quoting from Genesis 17.4, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's not spiritual, that's physical. Uh, in the presence of him whom he believed. Now, this is important. Who did Abraham believe? He believed God. Was it the Son, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? doesn't say. It's God. It's the Trinity. It's the triune God. That's who he's believing in. There's not a distinction there among the persons of the Trinity. In the presence of him whom he believed, and then he defines the one whom he believed. Now, this is really important. He is the God 
who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, what that meant for Abraham had to do with uh, resurrecting his ability to sexually procreate and to father a son has other applications because God can give life where there's death. So remember this. God here, the God Abraham believed in, who he believed the promise of the God who gives life to the dead. Verse 18 goes on to say that uh, against hope, contrary to hope, human viewpoint, in hope, that is in the confidence in God, he believed so that he became the father of many nations. That's physical. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants your seed be. Who spoke that? God the Father. Genesis 17:4. As for me, behold, my covenant, God said, is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. That's the promise. You believe a promise. You don't just believe in something amorphous, something nebulous. You believe something that's stated. It's a promise. As for me, God said, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be a father of many nations. So that's physical descent. But we also know that Abraham is the, is the spiritual father of all who believe. doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. Galatians 3 through 8, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, another quote from Genesis 15, 6. Therefore, Paul says, know that only those who are of faith, that is believing the right promise from God, only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. That's why Paul says not all Israel is Israel, because physical descent isn't enough. It has to follow Abraham. We also have to follow Abraham in terms of spiritual descent. That's the real key. In verse 8, he says in the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. That's spiritual descent, spiritual faith. Seven, faith always focuses on a promise by believing it to be true because ultimately of the one who makes the promise. A promise is no good if the person behind it is impotent or a liar. Romans 4.19 states, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. The point here in the next several verses, 19, 20, 21, and on, is that, that, that Abraham's experience was it can't happen. She's old, I'm old. Our experience is it isn't going to happen. But God's promise was more real to him than his experience. And that's what that's how our faith gets strengthened is when we start believing that God's word is more real to us than our experience. And so my eighth point for review is that Romans 4, 20 to 22 simply reinforces the reality of Abraham's trust in God's promise to give him a son through the natural procreation process, even though both he and Sarah were far too old to have children. Abraham believed God could do whatever he promised. He finally gets to a growth point. He's been justified phase one since before he left Ur of the Chaldees. But all through this time, through all these different tests, his faith is growing and, and strengthening. So verse 20 states, he did not waver or he did not doubt the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. That's not phase one faith. This is a process. That is phase two growth. So what's happened now? We've made a transition, or Paul's made a transition. The first part of the chapter, he's talking about phase one justification. Now he's talking about phase two and, and the growth of the believer and Abraham's growth. And so verse 21, he says, and being fully convinced that, or, or as I pointed out last week, it just should mean convinced, fully convinced is redundant. Being convinced that what he, that is what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, and now Paul is applying the same 
verse, but now it's it's he's just applying it to phase two justification. Says it was accounted to him as righteousness. So he's getting righteousness imputed, or experiential righteousness imputed, as he is growing spiritually. So point nine, at this point, Paul has shifted away from discussing what Abraham believed initially for justification, salvation, phase one, to ongoing faith for imputed phase two righteousness. Now, what do you mean by that, Robbie? Okay, we got to have to understand there are these two justifications. Here's my first line of argument. The application of this in verse 24 is stated to be to us. Who's the us in Romans 1 through 4? It's we who are believers in Jesus Christ. Do believers in Jesus Christ need to be justified? No, we're already justified, phase one. So he says in verse 23, says, Now this was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, and that follows the translation or the Greek and the Septuagint, but it's also for us, us who? Us believers. It, should, it shall be that his righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who are we believing in in that phrase? Are we believing in Jesus who died on the cross for our sins? No. What's the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the object of belief in this verse the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Is the object of faith in this verse uh, the cross? No. Why? It's not talking about phase one justification. It's talking about phase two justification. But, uh, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. Now, the 11th point. The object of faith here is not Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins, but on God the Father who's the one who can Bring life where there is death. See, we're sti- we still have problems with we're not spiritually dead anymore, but we've got a lot of carnal death hanging around. We have to have the abundant life. So this shifts to phase two. He's beginning, Paul is beginning his transition from talking about justification in these verses to when he's going to be talking about sanctification starting in chapter six. He's starting the lead up here. So... Let's go to one other verse. Just as Abraham believed in a resurrecting God, this is not when he's just getting justified, phase one. He, by the time he finally gets to Genesis 22 and God says, take Isaac, your son, your only son, to Moriah and sacrifice him, Hebrews tells us that he did it because he knew God could raise him from the dead. So now he's, his belief isn't in God for justification, salvation, it is in God in terms of his spiritual growth and sanctification. And we know this because of James 2.21 and following, which talks about a second kind of justification. In James 2.21, we read, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, you're either justified by faith or you're justified by works, but to get into heaven, it's one or the other. It can't be both. So James, as I've pointed out many times, isn't writing about getting into heaven. He's writing about spiritual growth. He's not talking about being justified in this whole section of James James 2. And uh, so Abraham had a second kind of justification related to his Phase 2, spiritual growth. Same with Ahab. Verse 25 of James 2 uses Ahab, Rahab as, a, as an example. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when, she's received, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? She was already a phase 1 justified believer. So we have a second justification, which is a vindication of faith. Now, the way James 2.21 through... 24 reads as this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see, James says, that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was brought to completion? See, it's brought to completion because it starts with phase one, but then it's matured 
through phase two. And then James says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But that verse identifies his phase one justification. But when he lives out his spiritual life, he grows spiritually, has experiential righteousness and comes to maturity. And then James says in a badly translated verse, you see then that a man is justified by works and most English translations say, and not by faith only. In other words, that communicates that you have to have works and faith. That's lordship salvation. So what's the issue here? The issue here, I'm just going to skip to the key verse. The issue is here. When, when this is written, translated, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. That word only in the English text modifies what word? The English text, what word does only modify? Faith? How many people say faith? Raise your hand. What kind of word is faith? Verb, noun, adjective, adverb. What kind of word is faith? What? What? It, it, no. Faith is a noun. What is only? Only is an adverb. An adverb doesn't modify a noun. An adverb modifies what? A verb. Where's the verb? It's not there. It's left out because it's stated earlier. What the verse really says is, you see then that a man is justified by works and not justified. See, it's left out. It's ellipsized. And not justified by faith only or only justified by faith. So, since adverbs modify verbs, we have to supply the, when we supply the ellipsized verb, we see it's not justified by faith only, but now only is in the wrong place, because only is still at the end modifying the noun faith, and we really need to move it up so that it reads, you see then that a man is justified by works and not, ju- not only justified by faith. That's how I have it in the bottom line. I didn't correct it on the top line. Justify, reading the bottom line, justifies the ellipsized verb in the second clause, and it should be read and not only justified by faith, which indicates that it's not that you're justified phase one by works and faith, but that there are two different kinds of justification a justification by faith alone that is how you're declared righteous at phase one and a second justification that comes in phase two as a result of trusting in God. How do you summarize a Christian life? Trust and obey, trust and obey to be happy in Jesus. There's no other way. It's very simple, only two things. Everything's boiled down. So as we trust, that's what Abraham's doing. His faith is being strengthened and what's happening He's, received, he's being declared righteous, ongoing phase two righteousness. And so this is reiterated. Um, Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith Abraham, when he was tested, see that's phase two, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figure to sense. So he was trusting God. He's already justified saved, but his ongoing faith, he has experiential uh, righteousness that is, and that is imputed according to Romans 4. So uh, we come to the conclusion of the verse, of the, of the chapter. Jesus died because of our sins and then because of justification, uh, or because we have justification secured, he was raised. There are two phrases there that use the same uh, grammatical construction, uh, which would be translated for our or because of our or uh, on account of our offenses. But the object of that prepositional phrase is different. For our sins is a negative. Sins are a negative thing. For our, for our uh, justification is a positive thing. 
So they need to be understood a little bit differently. And so the first one is Jesus died because of our sin. That's why he had to go to the cross. The second one is because justification has been accomplished. He's raised from the dead. And that is God's vindication of his work on the cross. This is great stuff. Justification, phase one, is by faith alone. But there's also justification, ongoing justification by faith in phase two, which is what James is saying, the same thing that Paul is saying. But you pick up 90% of the commentaries on James, they'll say they disagree. That's because their presupposition is lordship, not free grace. And because they don't understand free grace, they never get it right. And they always introduce uh, works by the back door. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to... We've had to reflect upon uh, your word. We thank you for the pre-trib conference, for Tommy and all the work that he's done, and for the other men and all the work that they did, and how this helps so many to uh, understand more clearly the rapture, the second coming, and your plan for us in the church age. And, Father, we thank you for uh, what Paul has said here in Romans in these uh, first four chapters, which make it so clear that we, there's nothing anybody can do to overcome the deficit of sin. If they think they can, then they have a very superficial, shallow view of sin. But when we understand how profound and horrible sin is, we know there's nothing we can do to counter it. And so there has to be a gift of righteousness. And the only way to gain that gift is by faith alone in Christ alone. And we thank you for this perfect gift of salvation. In Christ's name, amen.